Hi, I'm Diane. I'm an alcoholic. I know. I, <laughs> they're trying to give me instructions on how to talk into this mic. I have never had a problem being heard in my life. I, <laughs> I am really pleased to be here. I'd like to thank the committee for inviting me. I fulfilled the requirements to be at this convention. I drank way too much. I don't drink now, and I know Carter R. And that <laughs> seems to be just about what everybody else has done. I, um, you know, I was talking to Scotty before, before this convention. I think one of the, one of the reasons that I continue to speak in Alcoholics Anonymous is because of the people that I meet. The people across the United States and in Canada that I've met that speak the language of the heart, although I've never liked to be that mushy. I mean, I, I always got embarrassed when they said love and stuff when I was new in AA, but people have touched me in Alcoholics Anonymous. Speaking is not something that I do well. I am not, if you're expecting tonight to hear a speaker, you are going to be very disappointed. If you, however, just came to hear someone share their experience, strength, and hope, you got it not. There's no problem, because that's what I got. I, I have a lot of experience, which a friend of mine says is a way that you get good judgment. The problem with that is the way you get, ex you get experience is by bad judgment. And that's about what I've done in my recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have made a lot of mistakes. I mean, I have made some major errors in judgment, but I have basically learned from them. I was born in Lansing, Michigan, real close to where Tom was. You know, I've got to tell you something else that I feel right now. I was feeling like they, they got sober when I was young. I mean, <laughs> they got so I was eight years old when Jim got sober, and I was nine when Tom got sober. And I was feeling intimidated. I mean, they're sober almost as old as I am. Except for that really doesn't mean anything, does it? I, if I stay alive long enough, and when I tell you the rest of my story, you'll understand why I say that. If I stay alive long enough, I will probably not drink that long, too. My life is not good when I drink. I was born in Lansing, Michigan, to parents who really don't like children. They didn't like children then, and they don't like them now. They're not fond of their... I mean, you know, like two or three hours, and they burn out. And... It's not that they're bad people. They're not bad people. They're just not fond of kids. And we used to make them really nervous, and especially myself. I, I have always had the kind of personality, you know you have kids, and say you have two or three, and you've always got one. You say, one more peep, and I'm going to smack you. And I would always have to peep. I mean, I'd have to peep. And I've been like that since I was born. I mean, I don't remember any time in my life when I didn't have to see just how far I could push them before they would hurt me. And I generally, I generally made it. We lived in Michigan until I was seven years old, and we moved to California. I've been there for 32 years, so if you're mathematically inclined, you can figure out that I'm 39. If you're not, I'll help you. <laughs> this is the oldest I've ever been, and I don't know how to act. I don't, <laughs> I'm telling you. I, I never expected to live this long. We came to California and 
the one significant thing I remember about my family, besides the fact they shouldn't have had kids, was that I never felt comfortable there. It always seemed like everyone in my family knew what they were doing. I don't look like them, I don't act like them, and I obviously didn't feel like them. And I am also the only alcoholic in my family, except for my grandfather who died. But in my immediate family, I'm the only one. And I always felt very different, very awkward, very intimidated, and very needy of attention because they were never around. And so I would do things to get their attention. And it never really mattered to me whether they got angry or not, just so they paid attention to me. And that didn't change a whole lot. I got into school and I had the same feelings. I mean, I get into, into elementary school and I walk in and I sit in the classroom and I remember just like it was yesterday, every single kid in that class had a friend. Every kid in the class came with somebody. It was like Barbie and Ken. And I came by myself. I was an isolated, lonely, afraid child. And I also grew way past my expectations. I, after this meeting, there will probably be 49 women who are four foot nine in this room. What I have always aspired to be in my life was four foot nine. One of those helpless femme fatales that the men adore and care for. You know, I grew up to be healthy. The kind of kid that they pinch on the cheek and they say, God, you're healthy. I mean, I was like baby Huey to my friends. You know what I, have you felt like that? You know, you're afraid to touch anyone because you'll crush them. That's how I felt. I was awkward, awkward kid. And I was big and clumsy and I always felt ashamed of myself and I always felt embarrassed by myself. I don't know where those feelings came from. I, I don't think my parents told me I was big and awkward and clumsy. I, I just had those feelings from the time I can remember. And I also had great difficulty in ever appearing stupid in public. I have difficulty with that today. My greatest joy in life is not to be humiliated publicly. I don't know how you feel about it, but it doesn't make me happy at all. And, at that time when I was growing up, I was terrified to be humiliated. And what it made me do was be very, very quiet so I would never say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And when I got into the sports in school, and no one would pick me for their team because I had difficulty in moving. I didn't want to do it wrong, so I didn't do it. And you just didn't, don't get anywhere that way. I, I was a no-risk person. You just... I was afraid. From the time I can remember, I've been afraid. And I got into junior high school, and my parents got divorced in California, and they fought for us, which was the only time in my life they ever paid attention to me. I really kind of liked their divorce myself. I got, I got a lot of juice out of it. And I'm a person that, like, I don't know if any of you know John from um, Massachusetts, but he's this big old Indian, and he always says, I, I don't suffer well. Well, I do. I suffer well and long. And the more public I am when I'm suffering, the better I like it. And the more people that come over and hold me and tell me how sorry they am for me that my parents were like that in my life, I loved it. I'm going to tell you, I am amazed that I ever grew up, that I ever wanted to have anything better because I loved to suffer. I was into the kind of drama of the pain of childhood and nothing that you could do about it. I got into high school and I was in high school in California and it was getting close to the 60s. 
probably in the 60s by the time I got into high school. And there was a gang for everybody in California. You know what I mean? You could be anything in high school. Now, I had problems with the socials, but I could have been anything else I wanted. I decided that what I wanted to do when I grew up was to be a cheerleader. You can laugh if you want to, but I knew what I needed. I needed instant gratification. I needed immediate attention and all of it I could get. Now, if I could have gotten a certificate to be a doctor in two weeks, I would be a doctor because I had two weeks, but I don't have eight years. I don't have eight years to go to school to be a lawyer and to get attention. I need it now, so I want to be a cheerleader. I suffer from a minor difficulty that made it impossible for me to be a cheerleader. However, I can't do two things at once. I mean, I could never shake my pom-poms and kick my feet at the same time. It would have been an absolute disaster. I just, I don't have that capability. And another thing I used to do with my life, instead of just doing things, is I always thought about how they would turn out. What would happen if? And I started thinking about what would happen if I got out there and I tried to shake my pom-poms and kick my feet at the same time, and I hit somebody. Or, God, what if I fell? And everyone was there and they saw me. I would die. I would die. I would never be able to go back to school again. But one of the things I heard when I was new in AA that hit home with me and I've loved ever since is that the difference between alcoholics and non-alcoholics is that when non-alcoholics get a flat tire, they call AAA. When alcoholics get a flat tire, they call suicide prevention. And that's it. That is what I do. That is the way I am. I am a person of intense emotion. And I don't know how to have gray area. I mean, everything is really good or really bad. And I decided that I would never be able to go to school again if I did something humiliating. So I didn't become a cheerleader. I became a surfer. Now, I became a surfer like I've become many things in my life. I got a surfboard. I got a surfboard, and I carried that surfboard everywhere I went. I mean, it was red, and it was big, and they noticed me, and they knew that I was a surfer. The only place I did not go with that surfboard is the ocean. <laughs> you got it. I don't like the ocean. I have never liked the ocean, and I, if I live to be 150 and stay in the same place I am in Huntington Beach, I will never go into the ocean. But I wanted to be a surfer. And after a while, they start looking at you. Funny. You know how people are. They get suspicious that you don't belong. And I never put the board in the water, and after about six months, they knew I wasn't a surfer. And I started feeling funny there, so I decided that I would be a biker, which is absolutely hysterical to me today. I, I cannot imagine what I was thinking. However, by that time, I had acquired something that helped me do things that I couldn't do on my own, something that did for me what I could not do for myself. And it started out in the form of peppermint schnapps. It was wonderful. Not peppermint schnapps, per se, because I ended up drinking tequila, and I really couldn't tell the difference. What it did 
for me was it made me bright. It made me all the things that Lois so kindly said I was at lunch. I was bright. I was clever. I didn't care if I was big and awkward. It made me four foot nine. It made me, I had better stories to tell. I felt warm. Who cared if I had Ozzie and Harriet for parents or not? I mean, I didn't care anymore about my home life when I drank. It just seemed okay to me. Everything seemed okay to me. And I figured if you drink a couple of drinks and everything seems okay, if you drink 25 more, you will be the best. You will be the best. And God knows I always shot for superior. I mean, you know, no average for me. So I always drank too much. Now, I'm not going to say that I was born an alcoholic. I have no idea. All I know is I never drank right. I never drank like other people I know. I always drank more than I needed to get something I never got past the first time I ever drank. I never got that same feeling again, and I always drank to get it, and I always drank more than I needed. I started drinking a lot in high school. It helped me join the groups of people that I joined. I don't know how much you know about bikers, and if there are any bikers out here tonight, please, I, please don't be offended. But I ran with an interesting group of people, and these guys had a lot to prove. And they never seemed to be so bad when they were by themselves, but when they got in groups, they liked to party. And you would drink a lot at their parties, and when people would pass out, they would get offended. So they would wake them up with lighter fluid and a match. And they had interesting ways of dealing with people that upset them or pissed them off, made them angry. And I, I'll tell you what, they made me nervous. I don't know how you feel about coming to on fire, but I never wanted to do that. So I started taking these little white pills. They were wonderful. I don't know. If you have a problem listening to any talk at all about drugs, even from an alcoholic, then don't listen to this part. It's very brief, but it's very much a part of my story. I started taking these little white pills so that I could last through those parties. And I'm going to tell you, you take a handful of those suckers, and you are fun for days. I mean, you are having a good time. And pretty soon, pretty soon you can't have that kind of fun anymore. I mean, something's got to happen. And you drink a little bit more, and you take a few red pills. Kind of mellow out a little bit. And I got involved in that no-risk drug called LSD. You take LSD, you sit in a chair, and life happens for you. You don't have to get up. Walls move, the floors move, people talk, they're not there. It doesn't matter. I mean, I got into a little social heroin periodically, and what I never stopped doing was drinking. I drank all the time, and I experimented with these other drugs, other chemical means to better living. And I had a very interesting high school education. I started getting arrested when I was 15 years old. I went to juvenile hall for the first time. I never did like juvenile hall, but I went back a lot. I was a public drunk. I like to drink with people. I like people to know what a good time I was having. And I drank a lot. And we used to go and have fun at beach parties. And 
One of, I'm just going to tell you one of the, the things about one of the incidences that, of my drinking that will show you what my drinking was like because it never got any better than this. And I drank 10 years more. I was 15 years old and we were going to have fun at the beach. And we all went down to the beach and we were drinking slow gin, which has got to be the most disgusting thing that was ever invented, but it works. So I didn't complain. I drank the slow gin. And then we had these quarts of warm beer. We were drinking these quarts of warm beer, having fun. I mean, you know how much fun you have. And somebody gave me this pint of Bacardi rum, and they said, I dare you to drink this. Now, if there's anything that I couldn't stand was to be dared. If they were daring me, I had to do it. It never occurred to me that I could die if I drank that pint of Bacardi rum. In fact, if it had occurred to me, I probably would have drank it anyway because I needed what they had. And they gave me the pint of rum and I drank it. And the next thing I knew, I came to in the Orange County General Hospital being x-rayed. Now, I've pieced together over the years what, have ha what happened that night. And what happened is I drank that pint of rum and I, got, I blacked out was my first blackout that I remember because it was a long period of time and I did a lot of bizarre things that other people were witness to. And you know how they always love to fill you in? I mean, you never, if there's somebody around when you do something bizarre, they'll tell you. And they told me that what I did was I got so wasted they wanted to get me home before my mother found out. And they took me to my swimming pool and tried to get me sober in the pool and they almost drowned me. And when we were going along the coast highway, I grabbed the wheel of the Corvette, and we were going 100 miles an hour down the coast, and I almost killed four people. I don't remember. They beat me nearly to death, and I ended up in the Orange County Hospital being x-rayed at 4 o'clock in the morning, and my mother had to come and pick me up. And all I remember feeling is, am I always going to look like this? I don't remember feeling bad or guilty or remorseful. I was, my face was, I had two black eyes and I was all cut up and beat up and I thought, am I always going to look like this? That was about as deep as I ever got. And I went to juvenile hall after that and they put me in reform school. I spent a year in a reform school that had a six month program. And the reason I spent a year in that reform school was because I had an attitude that they couldn't do that to me. And I was going to show them that they couldn't do that to me. So they did it twice as long. And that's pretty much the story of my life. I always make it a lot harder than it needs to be. I got out of high school and I decided that I didn't want to go to college, that what I wanted to do was to get married. It's a good thing I started looking when I was 18. It took me a long time. I was drinking a lot and doing a lot of drugs and I ended up in jail which is not a place I'm fond of. I don't like jail and I know I really didn't like jail because I only went there three times. And when I only do anything three times it had a bad effect on me. I got out of jail and I decided I needed to do something about my life. I was 18 years old. I had nothing. I had done nothing but cause trouble my whole life. My parents were very upset with me because I, when I was in school, they told my parents, they were so foolish to tell my parents this. They said, your daughter is in the top 4% of her class. She can do anything she wants. And isn't it a pity? 
that what I wanted to do was not exactly what they had, what had occurred to them. I mean, my dad thought I should be a lawyer. I wanted to drink. I wanted to drink and have a good time and enjoy my life. And I didn't want to be 9 to 5 like my dad. So I was 18 years old, and I got out of jail for the third time. I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. And I had a friend who had a stepfather who happened to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is the first time I ever heard about Alcoholics Anonymous. He took me to a meeting of AA. That, that was a long time ago. 21 years? 20, 21 years ago. There were not a lot of young people in Alcoholics Anonymous 21 years ago. The meeting that night appeared to be this big. Now I know it wasn't. But I had never seen as many. There were probably 500 alcoholics in that room. It was in Long Beach. And the speaker that night was Chuck C., who, until he died, was sober longer than I am alive. He was always sober longer than I was, old. And I looked at him that night, and he had white hair. That man had white hair all his life, I think. And I started looking around that meeting, and I was 18, and my life was not good. Good things were not happening for me or anyone around me. And the longer I looked around at those people, the better my life seemed and the less likely it seemed that I would belong in a room full of old people. I mean, those people had to be 50 years old. And we are talking 50. And I knew that when you reached 50, you had five good years left. That's it. I mean, that's the best you can hope for. Five good years and you're off the deep end. And you know what? I'm 39. I'm going to be 40 this year. And I am thinking, 50 looks so good. I want to be 50. I think by the time I'm 50, maybe I can have a successful relationship. Maybe. I mean, I have high hopes for being 50. But when I was 18, it looked like they're going to die. I am in the geriatric ward of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I am going to die here with these old people. And it started making everything about my life look good. I don't know if any of you have experienced that, but alcoholism has a way of making pain vague. It has a way, that's why they tell you, remember your last drunk. Remember the pain. Remember what it felt like. Remember the humiliation. Remember the remorse. Because it's so easy to get vague about it. Why do you think most of us could quit drinking 25 times in our career and always start again? Because it gets so vague when the pain of living gets so hard. When reality gets so unbearable again, it gets so vague what happened to me when I drank and I would always start again. And that's what I did. It looked like I just couldn't belong here in Alcoholics Anonymous and I didn't know what you had to offer. And I started drinking again. And I went out and found somebody to marry me. I didn't get married until I was almost 21, so you know it took me a few years. And I was not in great condition at that time. Drinking the way I did and living the way I did, you don't have a lot of time to bathe, and you don't have a, a lot of time to get into, you know, hygiene, any of that stuff. And so you just can't set your sights too high. But if you're diligent in your efforts, you can get married. That's, <laughs> I mean, I know. I, I found this little guy to marry me, and we had absolutely nothing in common. In fact, I'm really surprised I asked him his name. It was just like the major requirement is he would marry me. And we got married to live happily ever after, and I 
realized after six months that this was not it. Why I married Rick, the reason I married Rick was because I was so empty and so lonely and so afraid that I would never, ever be okay. And I wanted somebody to make me okay. And so I married Rick to make me okay. And you know nobody can do that for you. And in six months I realized that not only did he not make me okay, but if I looked really closely, he started looking a lot like the reason I was so screwed up. And in fact, the harder I looked, the, long, the more I realized that if I would have never married that jerk, I would have been all right. Now, doesn't that just fry you how we can do that? But I really believe that. If I never would have married that guy, if I would have gone to college like my mother said, I would have been all right. So I left him in the middle of the night, which is what I do. I don't know how to confront people and say, this is how I feel and this is what I want to do. Goodbye. I just packed my clothes and left. And I moved back to Orange County. I'd been living in L.A. County. And I decided I was going to college. I was going to take my mother's advice and make something out of my life. And I decided I would be a psychiatrist. (laughs) If you ever have problems with gratitude in your sobriety, I'm going to give you something to be grateful for. I didn't make it. (laughs) I am not a psychiatrist. And you should thank God daily for that, because I could be helping you. I I mean, that is sad. But I went to college and I took all the appropriate classes. I took your state mental hospital. (laughs) Which is what I do. I have never been a person low on goals. I have always had high aspirations and tremendous goals. But whatever ingredient it is that you have to have to carry that out, you know how to get from here to here, I didn't have it. I burn out in six months. I mean, six months was extensive time to me. And I, n- nothing would ever be enough past that time. And I ended up, when I left Norwalk Mental Hospital, I was 25 years old. And my parents had kicked me out for the 25th time, and they swore they would never let me back. My sister said I could never come to live with her again because I stole some things from her that she couldn't get back. I had no one left in my family. So what I did is I moved to Orange County and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I didn't call Alcoholics Anonymous because I thought you could help me. I had absolutely no idea that my life would change as greatly as it has. I called Alcoholics Anonymous because I didn't have anything else to do. There was no one in my life that would put up with one more minute of my crap. There was absolutely nowhere to go and I had tried to kill myself before I went into Norwalk and they didn't let me die. So I was alive and I had nowhere else to go. And I called a member of Alcoholics Anonymous that had taken me to a meeting once before when I very briefly, like for two days, tried to make a stab at this thing before I ended up in the nut house. And I had called her over this period of time. She was so foolish as to give me her phone number. And I would call her drunk like at 3 o'clock in the morning and tell her how stupid the big book was. And I called this girl and asked her to take me to a meeting. And you know what? She did not 
ever once say anything about all those times I called her. She never said, are you sincere? Are you drinking? She never said anything. She said, where do you live? I'll pick you up at 7.30. She took me to a meeting in Midway City, and it was on a Thursday night. I will never forget this as long as I live. It was on a Thursday night. I walked into that room, and they had these tables like this, these rectangular tables, and they had them in this rectangular shape, and they sat all these alcoholics around them, and they told them they were having a roundtable discussion. Now, you know, with my propensity for feeling stupid in public, for how I always felt, I knew that they were trying to humiliate the new people, putting them around those square tables and pretending like they were having a roundtable discussion. I was having no part of it. I sat back of the room, and in California they call that the half measures area. You sit in the back so that you don't get too heavily involved so it doesn't rub off on you. And I sat in the back of the room, and I listened to them talk. And you know, the thing that I remember is I knew they had something. I also knew that I would never have it. I listened to them talk, and they talked about turning your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand it. Now, the guy earlier today said he didn't understand God. Well, when I was new in AA, I did. I understood God. I knew that God was the kind of guy, finds out you want to live, kills you. There is not anything that is good in your life that you better ever tell God about because he's going to get it. And that's how I felt about God. I was terrified of God, terrified of ever letting him know that I ever wanted to stay around here. And I don't like you talking about God when I'm new in AA. I didn't like it. I wouldn't hold your hand when you prayed. I didn't want to be friendly. I listened to you talk about love, and I already told you love embarrassed me when I was new. And the reason I found that it embarrassed me was because I knew that no one would ever love me. I have been a person who will love me. My parents had a difficult time. I just was not a person that warmed people up. I had a great language difficulty when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Not quite a language barrier, but almost. I was one of the most probably offensive people I have ever met in my life. I found it necessary to shock people. I didn't care if they liked me. I just cared that they knew my name. And I'm going to tell you, every older person in my home group knew my name. They knew who I was because I was one of the few women in Huntington Beach that said the F word from the podium. 25, 30 times a night. It didn't matter. And I had some other favorite words that I don't even say anymore, as a matter of fact. How mature of me. But I used to really... I, I, mean, I really don't even say I'm in private anymore, but I used to love to watch their jaws drop because I would know that I made an impression. And I wasn't a, a new member of Alcoholics Anonymous that endeared myself to you. It wasn't in me. I was too afraid of being rejected. I was too afraid that you would find out what I was like and who I was and what I had done in my life and that you wouldn't let me be here. And I left that meeting that night. I walked to the door, and this little tiny person came running over to me, and he said, Honey, nice to have you in our meeting. 
How are you and how did you like our meeting? And you know, I have never been able to say what I wanted to say. I've always had such fear. And people would make me so angry when they put me on the spot like that. What I wanted to say is, I'm really afraid I can't do this. I really don't want to drink anymore and I don't want to live like this anymore, but I don't think I can do this. And what I said was, I think you're all assholes. I don't see how you can stand yourself. And I am never coming back. (laughs) And that was April the 4th, 1973. And I've not left Alcoholics Anonymous since that day. But not because of me. It had probably as little to do with me as my being born to my parents had to do with them. Why I am still sober in Alcoholics Anonymous has everything to do with a power that I never understood, that I only thought I understood. I thought that God hated me and would wipe me out at the first opportunity. And I have come to believe in my years of sobriety that God loves me in a way I will never understand. I will never understand how I can be loved the way I've been loved by God and given the gifts that I've been given by God of the people that have been in my life. I've been so fortunate. And I need to tell you, too, that this has been the most difficult year of my sobriety, which I will get to very shortly. And that doesn't change anything. I believe that God loves me in a way that I will never understand. I stayed sober the first year on anger. I went to meetings and I would listen to people talk And the only time I would ever participate is when I disagreed with somebody, which was quite often. And I would always raise my hand. It was like a battleground for me. I would get in there and I would fight with all these people. And I knew all the old-timers who were insincere and all the ones that drank after the meetings. And I used to tell people how Alcoholics Anonymous worked, whether they wanted to hear it or not. In fact, if they didn't want to hear it, it made me have to tell them. And when people would say things to me in meetings like, go to 90 meetings in 90 days, I went to one a week whether I needed it or not. When they would say, read the book, work the steps, get a sponsor, I didn't do any of the above except for get a sponsor. And the only reason I got a sponsor is because there was one other woman in Huntington Beach who said the F word from the podium. And I liked her. I thought she had class and I asked her to be my sponsor. Her name was Crazy Annie. And they call her Irish Annie today. And She very seldom ever says that from the podium anymore either. I never say it, so you don't have to leave. From the podium. (laughs) Please, let's be honest here. I, um, I went to meetings once a week. I didn't read the book. I didn't work the steps. I didn't get desperate enough to do that. I fought with people. I hated people. But I kept coming back. And I look back on my first year now, and I know the reason I kept coming back was because of you. It didn't have anything to do with what I believed or what I thought or what I... There was something very real and very special that the people in Alcoholics Anonymous had. And I didn't think I could ever have it, but I wanted it. And I felt like as long as I was around them, maybe I could get some of it. I went to meetings... a little bit more when I realized that what I really wanted to do was get married and live happily ever after. I increased my meetings because I knew that that's where I would find him. 
And I went to a lot of meetings, and I was in this uh, alcathon. We have alcathons in California, which are 24-hour meetings. And it was 1 o'clock in the morning. And I walked into this alcathon, and there he was. I am going to tell you, nothing like that has come into Huntington Beach, Alcoholics Anonymous, since. That, that man was good-looking. He had those big brown eyes, and he had hair everywhere. And he was wild, and he was crazy, and he was my kind of guy. And I knew that this was God's will for me. If there was ever a God's will, I knew that this was it for me. And I walked over to that guy, and I sat down next to him, and we started talking. And we realized right away that we had a lot in common. I mean, we were both sober 10 months. We both knew everything there was to know about Alcoholics Anonymous. We both hated the same old-timers. I mean, we both played guitar. I mean, we had so much in common. So we went and explained to his wife and children what had happened. It's a lot easier to say now than it was then, I'm going to tell you. That was probably one of the most difficult learning experiences of my life. All we want is for them to go into the closet until they're 18. I don't want to hurt them. I don't want them to suffer. I just want them to go away. And I don't know how to say any of this. I don't know how to say any of this to the people in my home group who have loved me no matter what I've done in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know how to tell people what kind of person I am because I was ashamed of being like that. I don't know how to tell them that I married God's will who happened to be married to somebody else at the time. And after six months, I realized that this is the greatest mistake I have ever made in my life. This man is selfish. This man is so selfish that he made me look good. I mean, I, looked, I thought, i got to get him a sponsor. I mean, I have got to help this man. He has got severe emotional and mental difficulties. What I did is I went, I had gotten rid of my first sponsor because she didn't merit, want me to marry God's will. So I went, I got this other sponsor, and she was the difference between my being here and not being here because as things will happen, God's will went to practice his principles in another affair after we'd been married for a little while. And uh, justice was served. And I realized that I was not going to make it. That I had lied and cheated and stole my way through Alcoholics Anonymous just like I did everywhere else. People offered to love me here. They offered me a new way of life and I abused it just like I did everything else in my life because I didn't know how to do it any other way. And I knew when I was three years sober and God's will was gone and he took the kids, I knew that I was going to die. My sponsor called me up and she said, you know, Diane, you're a liar, a cheat, and a thief. And if you're willing to start there, you can probably stay sober. She didn't tell me God's will would ever come back. She never mentioned that I would not have to suffer again in my life. She never said that anything good would ever happen to me. She said, if you're willing to start there, you probably will never have to drink again. And you know what I found out in staying sober from that time to this? Life has not always gone well for me. It's been very difficult a lot of times. My own making a lot of times out of my control. But staying sober and being willing 
to walk through whatever situation comes up in my life gives me another day. And if I have another day, things can change. It's not that they change for what I would call better, it's that they always change. And I have never, ever been sorry. Not even today, I am not sorry that I stayed sober through the things that have happened in my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. I started working the steps when I was sober three years. I never worked any steps before that. I started with step one, just like I was new in AA, and I worked all 12 of the steps in the order that they were written, just like I was a regular alcoholic, just like I was one of you. And you know what? Everything that they promised members of Alcoholics Anonymous who worked those steps happened in my life. Things changed. I started understanding how to handle situations that baffled me. I mean baffled me before. In fact, almost everything did. And I got less insecure. And I started being, I started realizing that I didn't have necessarily what I want, but what I had, I wanted. I wanted what I had. And I started getting excited about being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my sponsor volunteered me to be GSR. General service is not an outside agency, although sometimes in some areas people think that it is. In my area especially, they hate general service in Huntington Beach, and they used to boo me when I would give my report. And I found out how to get them to stop booing. I increased the length of my report. For every boo, I added a minute. And pretty soon, I got them to quit booing me because I made a deal with the ringleader of the booers and I said, look, I'll keep it short if you shut up. And they let me make my report every month. I did that for two years in Alcoholics Anonymous and two years passed and I was still sober and I started feeling better. Things, things changed for me and I didn't even realize it was happening. I listened to Tom talk last night and I agree with him that service is the key to feeling fulfilled and worthwhile in Alcoholics Anonymous. However, I don't always have the wherewithal to get, up, to get myself up and serve. I have been, a lot of times by my sponsors, forced into a situation where I was helping myself without even realizing what I was doing. I became district committee member. Tom had that job twice. I had it once, and then I became area secretary. It was the only job I told God I did not want. I don't want to be secretary, it's manual labor. I don't like manual labor. I was elected unanimously on the first ballot. And I served two years as secretary, and you know I did a good job. I worked hard, and I, by the time I was done serving as secretary, I really liked it. 1982, I was elected by our area as delegate to New York. And I need to tell you that that was probably one of the most meaningful experiences I've ever had in Alcoholics Anonymous. Not necessarily the best, but one of the most meaningful. It changed a lot of the way I felt about things. I got to New York, and I was nine and a half years sober at the time. I was 34 years old. I was the youngest delegate they'd ever had, and I sat down at the table. There were 90 other delegates in that room, and Billy, Billy M. is here tonight. He, we served on the same panel. And I looked around that room and I thought, God, every other area sent an adult. And they sent me. 
and something happened to me that hadn't happened for a few years. I started feeling so inadequate and so incapable, and I started getting so self-centered and so wrapped up in my feelings that I knew I would not be able to do that job. In fact, I knew that they would impeach me when I got home because I would make a fool of myself. And I decided that what I was going to do is go home. I mean, if you can't do it, you can't do it. And they can't make you. And so I got up and I was going to go home. And I talked to my friend George G., who was a trustee at the time, and he said, Diane, has it ever occurred to you that there comes a time when we quit worrying about how we feel and we do the jobs they give us in AA simply because they need to be done? No, George, it never occurred to me. It had never occurred to me that I would do a job simply because it needed to be done. I wanted to be good. I wanted to do the job well. He said, you're not even going to remember you were delegate in five years. Why do you care how you do the job? It just needs to be done. And you know, I stayed that year and I did the very best I could, which wasn't great. And I went back the next year and I did a much better job. And I look back on my two years as delegate and I'll tell you I did the very best I could. It was a very good learning experience for me. We had a lot of problems in our area. I don't know if you've had any in yours with um, drug addicts and Alcoholics Anonymous. And because I came into Alcoholics Anonymous with other chemical problems than alcohol, I was asked to do a paper on that. And I, I really, I really believe the things that I wrote in the presentation that I made in New York. And one of the major things is that there is no way that a few hundred, a few thousand druggies in Alcoholics Anonymous who do not have an alcohol problem is going to hurt Alcoholics Anonymous. Hate and anger. And fear will hurt Alcoholics Anonymous. The kind of fear that made them make lists of requirements when we were new, when we were a new organization. The kind of fear that makes us turn against each other. That will hurt Alcoholics Anonymous. And the other thing that I discovered is that I am an alcoholic. I never identify myself as an alcoholic addict because I am an alcoholic. I had chemical problems other than alcohol, but if I don't drink and I practice the principles of recovery in my life, I don't stick needles in my arms. I don't smoke those funny cigarettes. I do not find it necessary to live that way anymore because I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I don't need to be different than you in order to do that. I stayed sober and life got better. And I got out of general service, and I, the last year I was in general service, I forgot to tell you that I took a sabbatical from all relationships. I have a tendency not to do things when I don't do them well, and I figured two marriages in that bad a shape meant that I didn't do it well. And so I was not going to get involved for a while, and I dedicated my life to AA and, and women, helping the women in my area get sober and um, there's a, a girl here with me today that flew out from California. Now I would like to tell you that she flew out simply to hear me speak. She didn't. She's dating someone in Tennessee. So she flew out to see him. But they, they were so gracious as to drive up and to be with me today. And, and I'll tell you something that I learned about love in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
I learned it in the beginning all from the women that I sponsored. And she was one of the first women that I ever sponsored from her first meeting. And I took this little girl to an AA meeting. And you know how you always want it to be perfect? I mean, you know that they have to say the right things and do the right things. I'm going to tell you that this had to be the worst meeting that I have ever been to in my life. They got into some kind of controversial argument about sex and stuff, and it was absolutely crazy, and they were screaming and yelling, and this poor little girl got up and ran out of that meeting, and I was going to kill people in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous because they were affecting her sobriety. You know, it's been six and a half years. She hasn't left Alcoholics Anonymous. What I understand is that I do not get people sober. I do not keep people sober. I'm simply a messenger. I'm simply here to serve you and to serve God, whatever capacity he sees fit to use me. And I'm, I learned about loving through those women. I've been given much more from them than I will ever give ever in my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have been a member of the same home group for the entire time I've been sober, and they have put up with me through countless errors and judgment. I was their trusted treasurer for a while before I had worked any of the steps, and I'd been a great thief before I came to AA, and I remained a great thief after I came to AA. And I stole all the money from my home group. I had to pay them back, of course. But I want to tell you what that did for me, that experience. That single experience eliminated any stealing that I have. I've never stolen again in, in my life, in Alcoholics Anonymous, outside of Alcoholics Anonymous, because it was so painful. And that's how I learned when I married God's will. I married God's will. He belonged to somebody else. I have never done that again. I wish I didn't have to learn that way. I wish I was the kind of member of Alcoholics Anonymous who could see somebody else do it and say, oh, I don't want to do that. It looks bad. I have always had to get my own experience, but I have gotten it in Alcoholics Anonymous and I've stayed sober. I continued in service in Alcoholics Anonymous and when I was... Um, in my last year as delegate, I met another man. I decided that I was going to open up my area to God and I was going to start dating. I'm going to tell you, I hate dating. I hate dating. I think it is the most masochistic thing that people do to each other. I mean, you get all primed, right, for this marvelous date and you cannot even enjoy dinner because you're worrying about being married 10 years you can't even have a good dinner you can't go to a movie because you want to know what he's going to be like in 10 years I mean I have never been able to have a date and so what I did instead of dating was I got emotionally involved after a couple of weeks of this pain and I got emotionally involved with someone our relationship was very well balanced I gave and he took and that's pretty much what it was like. And I'm not going to take his inventory. He has his own life to live in his own program. I'm going to tell you what effect it had on me. There were some things that happened in my childhood that did not cause me to be alcoholic, but that definitely caused me to have difficulty with self-esteem. I was molested when I was eight years old by a babysitter. And I have never in my life been able to get rid of the feeling that there was something bad wrong with me that there was something terribly damaged in me and that it was my fault. 
And I never realized that I felt like that until after I had dated this guy for a year. And at the end of the year, he called me up one day and he said, Diane, it was nice, but I've met this girl and she's wonderful and you were okay, but never that great. And I hung up and I felt like there was something terribly wrong with me and that people always knew it that I might not know it, but they always knew it. Now, what I did, these are some of the mistakes that I have made in Alcoholics Anonymous in the last two years that almost caused me to lose my life. And I want to share them with you because I don't want that ever to have to happen to you. If you can ever learn anything from anybody said, what anybody said, please listen to what I say right now. I made a lot of mistakes. And one of the first mistakes was I was so ashamed of the way I felt that I didn't want anyone to know. So I didn't tell them. And I started speaking a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous and going to a lot of conventions and getting very, very busy so I didn't have to stay in touch with how I felt and what my life was like. And I was very active in Alcoholics Anonymous, but very inactive in my personal recovery. And I started getting further and further away from the people who loved me. And after a while, I started skipping meetings. I never skipped meetings. I knew what happened to people who skipped meetings. And I started skipping meetings. In September of 1985, I sat down on my couch and I realized that I was 37 and a half years old. I was financially bankrupt because they had sent me credit cards. And I was in heaven spending all this money and paying $20 a month until I, was, I realized I was accruing debt without ever using the card. I was in terrible debt. I was alone. I was fat again. I was miserable. And look what I had done with the opportunity that Alcoholics Anonymous gave me. Now, if you listen very closely, you will recognize this as self-pity. If you go to an AA meeting and you say these things, they will tell you, you are into self-pity. And you will get angry as hell, but you'll probably get better because they won't let you stay there. I didn't do that. I stayed home on my couch. I went to my job. I told the receptionist I'm not taking any calls. I cut off everybody that I loved in Alcoholics Anonymous because I was so ashamed with what I'd done. And I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be an albatross in Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I started doing all the things that they say never to do. I started getting too tired. I started getting way too lonely. The women that I sponsor would call me up, and I wouldn't talk to them. But they would call me every day. Daryl Lynn is one of the people that called me every day. And I have another little girl I sponsor who was real insecure, and she used to... She told me after I got better that she used to sit by her phone and she would say, it's okay if she's a bitch, it's okay if she's a bitch, I have to call her. And they would call me anyway. Now I'm going to tell you that's what I understand as love in Alcoholics Anonymous, to overcome that kind of fear to do something for someone else. And in November, at the end of November of 1985, I decided that the only thing I could do was to take my life. And I made plans. And Daryl Lynn also happened to interfere with those plans. She has the same medical doctor I do, and she told him what was going on with me. And he ended up getting me in touch with a psychologist friend of his who was like Mary Poppins. I don't know if you have ever met anybody like this, but this little guy was the happiest son of a, 
gun I have ever met in my life. I mean, he was happy, happy, happy all the time. And everything negative thing that I said to him, he brought it back positive. And the first thing he told me I had to do was return to Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, I don't care what else you do, I don't care what you say there or what you do there, but you must go to meetings. And I went to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and I cried and I felt ashamed and I felt embarrassed and I felt alone for a while. But the members of my home group came over to me and they put their arms around me and made it okay. I don't know how you do that. I will never understand how you do that for me. And I will never understand why it's so hard for me to let you. But you make it okay for me. And I started going back to meetings and I started sharing from the podium about what it was like and what I had done and the mistakes that I'd made. And I started working with the psychologist and we started running a group for senior citizens. And I got very involved with him. He was a, a lovely, warm person. and. He started running uh, some other groups, and we did some things together, and we became friends. And a bunch of us had a surprise birthday party for him in July, and he was just a delightful man. On November the 14th of this year, he committed suicide. And it's probably been one of the most difficult things I've ever gone through in my sobriety. I really cared about him, and he saved my life. And he couldn't do it. And I have felt over the last few months that I should have done something. I should have been able to help him. I should have been able to give something back. And I've had such a hard time with it. The thing that I've done differently this time is I've continued going to meetings feeling this way. It's been very hard for me. I had such a hard time dealing with the feelings. I ended up in the psychiatric hospital for a week and a half trying to find, get some balance with it. And I was embarrassed and I was ashamed that I was there. But everybody in my home group, people came to visit me and, and they have been on my side, which is one of the major reasons that I'm speaking here tonight instead of someone else because they make it possible for me to feel like I can do one more day. I'm not going to tell you that it's easy for me today because it's not. I still have difficulty dealing with his suicide and with understanding that there was nothing I could do. I still feel like I should have done something. And I still feel the loss of him in my life. But I have gained so much from being able to stay in Alcoholics Anonymous one more day. And if there's nothing else, if there's nothing else that you hear tonight, Please hear that all you have to do is not quit. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have a lot of money. You don't have to know how to use credit cards. You don't have to be pretty. You don't have to be bright. All you have to do is not quit when it's hard and things will change. You will have an opportunity to experience love like I've experienced with the people that love me that are beyond your wildest dreams. I never knew it was possible to feel this sheltered and protected and loved in my life. I knew I didn't deserve it. And I still have problems feeling like I deserve it today, but I am so blessed with the people in my life and the home group that I have. And 
and with a God that I will never understand that loves me beyond my comprehension. And I am very grateful to you for allowing me to share with you tonight. Please don't go away. Thank you.